0: Foreign yearly corn, no decorum, balbettando il labbro, fa' fuori la voce, gir non può, ma mi mirre scommenza tua. Che fare, che farò, oh che gran fatalità, da di non si può, non si può, di voi, di lor pieta, di voi, di lor pieta, di voi, di lor pieta.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Josiah's podcast. I'm here with Potter Edmund and on this episode we will be discussing Alistair McIntyre and specifically After Virtue. We'll be uh, fighting off brain worms and trying to get to
0: the good stuff. But before we start, Potter Edmund, how are you doing? I'm okay. I had a bit of a cold, but I'm already doing better. (laughs)
1: Glad to hear you're recovering from your permacold. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about the music you
0: chose? Okay, so this was uh, from Cosi Fan Tutte, uh, and it's the aria where um, Don Alfonso is coming to tell the young ladies that their lovers have supposedly gone off or have been called to go off to war. It's it's not actually true. It's a trick. He's telling them their lovers are go, going off to war so that they can then come back in disguise and test the fidelity of their uh, beloveds.
1: Mozart writes such sublime operas about such uh, and the plots though are kind of all various shades of horrible. <laughs> like Don Giovanni is just, you know, focusing on this absolute horrible man, this monster and uh uh The marriage of Figaro is all about uh uh this this count trying to seduce his poor servant's fiance, and then Cosi Vantute is probably the uh worst of them all in that respect
0: yeah exactly and Don Alfonso in Cosi Tutte, and this is sort of the reason why I chose this piece of music for today 's discussion. He is sort of this intellectual cynic who thinks that uh everything who's, who debunks everything so the, the you have these happy innocent lovers and then he's the one who's going to come along and say ah but you know if you think about it reasonably really this is all an illusion <laughs> and if we uh we send you away to war and have you come back in disguise and woo each other's lovers you'll see actually they're not faithful to you
1: it really does kind of work as sort of as we'll see when we uh uh, start discussing after virtue with, uh, McIntyre's thesis there. Uh, what do you make of the plot? Is, is Mozart, uh, endorsing this sort of misogynistic, deeply cynical, cynical, excuse me, uh, view of the world or?
0: No, I don't think he is. It's, he is, uh, he's showing the, I mean, the fragility of, of the good that, um, if you take away the conditions that you need to flourish, it's easy to to fall. And but I think he, the way he portrays the the love of the young lovers in their music makes it clear that I think he wants to portray it as something real, not as an illusion. It's real, but it's really easy to destroy, also, which is uh, what happens. I'm gonna see if I can find the passage. This this
1: just I just remembered this, um, but it might be a good transition. Uh, a couple times early on, uh, here it is, uh, chapter, chapter four of, the, of uh, After Virtue, here McIntyre is talking about, uh, he starts sort of talking about current moral philosophy, and then he goes back to the Enlightenment here, and this is uh, the predecessor culture, the Enlightenment project of justifying morality. And he's sort of talking about the Enlightenment in different cultures. And he says, the greatest figures of all were certainly German, Kant and Mozart. And then a little later, a little later, he says, uh, uh, he talks about how music was formerly uh, about the belief that you were singing. And then it became about the aesthetics uh, Mozart's Freemasonry, which is perhaps the religion of enlightenment par excellence, stands in as, an, as ambiguous a relationship to the magic flute as does Handel's Messiah to Protestant Christianity. So I think. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's typical of McIntyre. He, gives, he, throws, he loves throwing out those bold statements, and you're supposed to sort of nod your head sagely. You say, ah, yes. <laughs> Handel's ambiguous relationship to Christianity. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: And uh, also, I mean, uh, not to stay on the music too long, but this is something that's always kind of fascinated me is uh, Mozart writes such beautiful music. And given our background, uh, you know, we were sort of taught the high point of music and maybe the high point of art as a whole as a result is... Mozart, uh, and, and I, I, that's, that's my view, uh, but then the philosophy we were taught was all this, you know, Thomistic rejection of everything, enlightenment, and Mozart is such an enlightenment figure. <laughs> he really is, uh, uh, I mean, he's, he, you know, the time in Austria there, it was, it was, uh, uh, Joseph II, right? Was yeah. The, yeah. Who was, uh, who is quite the Enlightenment man uh, himself.
0: He was, yeah, the Enlightened despot. But, I mean, Mozart's, not only is his relation to Freemasonry ambiguous, his relation to Enlightenment is as well. And so you have, Mozart is is the, especially in the Da Ponte operas, Mozart is, is really a composer of irony. Music is, opera especially is a medium that is very suited to irony because you have you have the contrast between the text and the music. And often, right. especially in Cosi von Tutte, actually, you'll have the music will be saying the opposite of what the words are saying.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. It's funny because De Ponte himself was a, just a thoroughly bad person. <laughs> have you ever read about him? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He's a
1: priest who had to run from Venice and, and, and you know, took up with all these women and ended up a grocer in New York, if I recall correctly.
0: Uh, actually, uh, lecture in Italian at Columbia University in New York.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> I, I swear, though, he
0: did ha- he did try to run a grocery.
1: At that, some yeah, point. That, that's it, it. May have, could well it may have failed. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's move directly to McIntyre now. So, why don't we start uh, sort of talking about? Well, he has this famous disquieting suggestion, right. which is basically. Uh, sort of, it's almost like a science fiction premise. It's, it's, uh, uh, have you ever read that one science fiction book, the, uh, a canticle for Leibowitz*? Yes. Yeah. It's basically that, which is that, uh, what would happen if all the science was gone, but we still had the vocabulary and people were like. Monks in these monasteries were copying blueprints, having no idea what the heck they meant, Right, painstakingly making them blue and not realizing that that was just a, a, a you know, the, the color blue had nothing to do with it. If it's easier to draw it in ink, you draw it that way. Uh, he does the same thing, but for morality. He says today there's disagreement, but it doesn't go anywhere. And he says the reason is because we have all these leftover terms that... We no longer know what they mean. We use them, but we've been divorced from the culture that brought about these terms or the culture in which they were meaningful. So that's kind of famous. But where I wanted to kind of start is then he goes and he says, let's look at emotivism. And he sort of uses that as his way in to talk about contemporary, contemporary moral philosophy. Yeah. So you want to say a little bit about what emotivism is, why he picks it?
0: Sure. Sure. So in that when he's talking about that disquieting suggestion that you mentioned, one of the the phenomena that he brings up, as it were, to suggest that there's there's some problem with the way moral terms are used in contemporary culture is the sort of shrill and passionate nature of moral disagreements, which seem to not be able to 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 progress towards any rational uh, resolution, but they just stay at the level of sort of one shrill moral accusation versus another shrill moral accusation. So you've got, for example, uh, the the debate about abortion, you have pro-life advocates, you know, who with great moral passion are denouncing the supporters of abortion, saying, you know, you support the murder of innocent babies and then you have the pro-choice ag- uh, advocates who are saying, you know, you support the oppression of women or whatever. And there's no there's no rational process by which these competing moral claims are uh, are adjudicated. They just you just have these two sides that are yelling at each other.
1: Right. So there's sort of three things he notes about the debates there though. The first is the shrillness, second is they're they're interminable, they don't they don't get solved. Right. But the third is that each side talks about reasons. Each side adduces reasons, objective reasons. But the reasons, you know, and they're valid syllogisms, the reasons don't convince the other side. They don't seem to be, despite their, uh, uh, you know, despite the fact that they are in form, objective, they don't seem to be anything that anyone gets anywhere with.
0: Right, right. So you have you have a, a kind of a performance of reason, but it doesn't seem to be actually fulfilling the function that reasonable arguments um, would seem to be uh, supposed to fulfill. So then emotivism comes in because it says, well, the emotivists have an explanation for this, why this is so. Namely, the emotivists being certain uh, 20th century moral philosophers. Um, I think he mentions A.J. Ayer here and C.L. Stevenson. Uh, C.L. Stevenson. Yeah, a few guys like that. Mostly Anglophone um, analytic philosophers, although Rudolf Carnap would be a a, a German-speaking Austrian uh, emotivist that he also mentions. Anyway, the emotivists say, well, the explanation for this is clear. Really, moral judgments are not about any um, objective reality. They're just about expressing our feelings about something and trying to manipulate other people's feelings
1: yes yeah, so he says it's the doctrine that all So re- reading from him now mm-hmm. all evaluative judgments and more specifically all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference expressions of attitude or feeling insofar as they're moral or evaluative in character so
0: exactly. really what you're
1: saying is how you feel about things
0: yes how you feel about things and how you want other people to feel about things. So if i say abortion is wrong, what i'm really saying according to the emotivists is boo abortion, you know. Right.
1: <laughs> or or as Stevenson would put it, uh, you know, i approve or disapprove of this, do so
0: as well. Yeah. I disapprove so, of this, do so as well.
1: Yeah, it 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 ends up being uh Manipulative at its core. But before we before we go that, let's let's talk about why he thinks it's so illustrative. Uh, Our illustrative. Sorry, I keep stumbling over my words today. Uh, of modern moral debate, because he does say he does he does hint that uh, uh, people like Gilbert Ryle have given sort of counter examples. So it's not as if all philosophers think emotivism is true. No, he just. I think what McIntyre's claim is that emotivism is a particularly modern theory that all philosophers, modern philosophers more or less, and that more importantly, modern people are acting as emotivists, whether they realize it or not.
0: Exactly. So, the this is he makes here a move that he makes uh, a couple of times in this book, and which is really sort of part of the delight of after which I mean. <laughs> what makes it so exciting to read is that he sort of turns the tables on people. So the emotivists, he says, look, the emotivists are are debunking moral discourse. They're saying, you know, all these solemn philosophers throughout the ages have been giving all these arguments for moral judgments. But really, if you examine it analytically and rationally, you'll find that moral judgments are just um, expressions of emotions and attempts to manipulate the emotions of others. And then what McIntyre does is he sort of debunks the debunkers here and he says actually, if you look at emotivist philosophers, they're claiming to make these universal claims about the nature of moral judgments, but actually they're just describing the way moral claims work in a very particular, very sick society.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it ties it back to the disquieting suggestion. Emotivism, he's is going to be the dominant mode of sort of uh, uh, moral statements, uh, moral discourse, when you have a society where uh, moral terms like good and bad and ought uh, have been divorced from the framework in which they originally made sense. So they're just sort of floating around with no basis. And the only basis... The emotivist can find for them is the basis of feeling, although he he points out, you know, like, you know, even even analytic philosophers have seen that it's not really the meaning, because uh, you can say any sort of thing, uh, and have an emotional context to it. Right. You can say, you know, the angry school teacher throwing his chalk at the child and, and, and screaming seven times seven equals 49 was the example. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) right. So as a theory of, as a theory of moral judgments, it's laughably bad and easy to show that it's, uh, that it doesn't work, but it was still a very popular theory, um, for at least a certain period in the 20th century. And he thinks that's sort of symptomatic of, the state of moral discourse that that such a plainly absurd theory could could have appealed to so many people.
1: And later he sort of argues, and I I think this is actually a a strong part, he argues that even the people who kind of try to reject it now because of the state of modern philosophy end up smuggling it back in one way or another. And he'll argue this uh, uh, after he starts talking about Kant more. Uh, And once he gets to he gets to a a really great section that I hope we talk about uh, where he talks about uh, Kant and Kierkegaard and he sort of has them as the sort of two uh, solutions in the 19th century to the to the problem that the Enlightenment led to in moral philosophy. Before we get there, uh, let's talk a little bit. He gives a little genealogy of uh, uh, emotivism and it's just too fun to talk about uh GE Moore and the uh Bloomsbury, <laughs> Bloomsbury group. group yes <laughs> he has a great line about them uh, uh, uh that I, i'll read and then and then you can sort of describe it he says uh he says of their theory and, and their conversations he says this is great silliness of course but it is the great silliness of highly intelligent and perceptive people <laughs> 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 which i just thought was great <laughs> yeah
0: Yeah, Alistair Uh, McIntyre is – if you have enough context to understand what he's talking about, he's really funny. Some people think he's boring, but he's only boring if you don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) He's really – he's got this sort of extremely bitter uh, wit that he's always – (laughs) <laughs> we're right and it's also because he'll he'll start
1: out there'll be long you know sort of complex philosopher sentences where you know lots of subclauses, and you're like eh, right. someone who's read too many books wrote that sentence right and there'll be a page of that and then all of a sudden there'll be these like zinging vitriolic put down's like right in a row <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or or those sort of sage you know, oh yes, Handels ambiguous relationship to Protestant Christianity. <laughs>
0: Right. Okay. So, G. E. Moore and the Bloomsbury Group. So, the Lytton Strachey and Virginia Woolf and all these people, whom we now know of as the the Bloomsbury Group, they were hugely enthusiastic about the professor of uh, moral philosophy at Cambridge. G. E. Moore. And
1: one of the first, one of the very first analytic philosophers, you know, right. uh, 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 pals with Russell, you know, uh, uh, was around for when Wittgenstein arrived on the scene, all that good
0: stuff. Yeah. So G.E. Moore, uh, important, important philosopher in, in the sort of tradition of English philosophy. And Moore had written this book called uh, Principia Ethica*, which is what the Bloomsbury people were so enthused about. And um, his position there is a kind of intuitionism. He says the good good is a non natural property, which you just intuit. And he's following here in the wake of um, utilitarianism and consequentialism, uh, especially Sidgwick, who's the uh, the big consequentialist philosopher. And Sidgwick, um, the, so the, the sorry the utilitarians. Their their whole thing was you try to maximize utility, but then it becomes very difficult for them to define what exactly utility is. It's sort of increasing pleasure and reducing pain, but then there are different kinds of pleasures and they're sort of irreducible, and it gets very complicated. And Sidgwick eventually uh, he he kind of throws his hands up in despair and says, "Well, you've got you've got various principles in in the moral life, but they're not really reducible to each other and." They're not entire, you can't entirely bring them into harmony. So instead of a cosmos, what we have is chaos in the moral life, says so Sidgwick. And he thinks of this as kind of a disaster. But Moore thinks, oh, this is really good. Actually, what you have is the good is, is sort of this non-natural property that you intuit in things. Um, and you want to the, – the purpose of, of, moral, of moral deliberation is to figure out what action will – Produce the most good, and that's the the one that you'll do, but you don't have to reduce uh the good to any other kind of principle, it's just something you intuit in things and it ends up being the 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 most important sort of uh places where the good is found end up being friendship and sort of aesthetic uh especially artistic experience and Bloomsbury takes this up with great enthusiasm. Um, you know, it's exploded Aristotle and Christ and Plato and all these uh, windbags of the past, and you know now we really understand what morality is about. <laughs> and uh, he gives a great uh, he gives
1: a great description of uh, uh, Lionel uh, what's his name uh, uh,
0: Lytton Strachey.
1: Oh uh, yeah, sorry, Litton uh talking about uh, how uh, their arguments would go because they still think at Moore's stage you know, it's the idea is that you can now argue about it because you just, you have to, you know, discuss and talk and then you'll discover uh, every, you can elucidate the intuitions. Uh, But it really ends up just being, you know, who's got the best, uh, you know, who can raise their eyebrow and look disapproving the best or who can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because finally there's no way of, there's no other measure of judging the intuitions. You can say you have, so if you have different intuitions, if you intuit, more good in this uh, action and the other person intuits more good and you're not doing the action, then you have no way of, um, there's no way of rationally deciding. So you just have to sort of uh, perform your the, how convinced you are your own intuition yeah. better. And so it's, yeah. it's a highly manipulative way of uh, living the, uh, a common life.
1: And emotivism sort of, I think, takes it one step further and uh, takes that same... Is this right? It takes that same idea of you know the good is just something you perceive and makes it subjective.
0: Right. It, it says it 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 describes uh, emotivism describes more realistically the kind of moral life that Bloomsbury was living. Really, they're not intuiting some non-natural property in things. What they're really doing is just manipulating each other uh, with their emotions. That's what's going on. And so then emotivism universalizes that and says that's what all moral discourse is.
1: And then he talks a little bit about the analytic uh, uh, backlash against emotivism. And it's principally because emotivism as a theory of meaning is – not very convincing, right? It's just not the case. We do not use these words as if all that they mean is "I like this" or "Yay!" That's or, or, or "Boo!" It's not. That's not what we really mean when we talk about these words. But then he says why emotivism has he calls it an unrecognized philosophical power uh, of emotivism is one clue to its cultural power, and he says it's because it's a theory of use rather than a theory of meaning. It's because, and he talks about uh, 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 Gewirth there, and he says, for one way of framing my contention that morality is not what it once was, is just to say that, to a large degree, people now talk, think, and act as if emotivism were true, no matter what their avowed theoretical standpoint may be.
0: Right, so people use moral uh, judgments to express their emotions and to manipulate the emotions of others, even though their moral judgments mean something else. That's not what they mean by what they say, but it is how how they often use what they're saying, especially if they're arguing with someone who uses moral judgments from that are taken from a context that's incompatible with the way they use moral judgments. So, for example, in the abortion debate, you have people who are using arguments that are taken from very different moral traditions, often sort of curtailed fragments of moral traditions that are no longer intact. Um, and when they talk with each other, they're not really reasoning with each other. What they're doing is um, expressing their emotions and trying to manipulate each other's emotions.
1: And so let's, I think at that point we can go on. The, the next thing he talks about is how the sort of sociology, because if it's a theory of use that's all about, you know, how our culture actually works now Mm -hmm. then you want to look at the sociology you want to look at the culture uh and he talks about how emotivism is uh a theory which you are unable to treat other people as ends you can only treat them as means because if it's true then the distinction between ends and means is is illusory right because uh there's no objective good the only thing you can be doing is you know making yourself happy, uh, right. making yourself feel good. Uh, and that can be your only motivation. there's there's no outside motivation. Uh, and he sort of he does an interesting thing. He starts talking about characters, basic characters of modernity, uh, which are the uh, aesthete. Where's the uh, the manager and what's the third one? I'm trying to find the passage.
0: So the Esthete are sort of these uh, Henry James characters, right? This sort of blasé, right. uh, um, rich, idle rich people who are sort of uh, searching for aesthetic enjoyment in life and sort of the one thing that keeps them going, keeps their boredom at bay.
1: Right. Uh, the manager and then the therapist is the last yeah. one. And he sort of identifies how they're all manipulative. The Esthete is very obviously Manipulative because his goal is keeping boredom at bay and obtaining pleasure and delight in in experience, so obviously all the world for him is just for his amusement uh, The manager is also it's not very hard to see how he's uh, manipulative because what is a manager supposed to do in a bureaucracy or a firm, but make people uh, uh, he's supposed to achieve efficiency, which is just to manipulate people into being the best worker bees they can be, right?
0: Yes. Well, so I mean, can, let's just take one step back and talk a little bit about manipulation, because this is the key. This is one of the key concepts here. So he uses he 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 uses kind of the Kantian distinction between treating someone as an end and treating them as a means to distinguish between manipulative and non manipulative social relations so non-manipulative social relations are to treat the other person as an end Kant would say more correctly you would say to treat the other person as having an end and so when you give someone reasons to do something say I'm trying to persuade you to do something Joel I'm pers- yeah. I want to persuade you to do a, a podcast next month or whatever uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh I can I sh- give you reasons um, why doing this will help you achieve the end that you are trying to achieve, right? So I right. say you want to be happy, Joel. Doing this podcast will you know contribute to uh, making you happy. Therefore, you should do it. And I can give the reasons why it contributes to your happiness and so on. Um, so that would be non-manipulative because I am I am considering when I'm trying to persuade you, I'm considering what your end is, what you want, and treating you as someone who has this end and is trying to pursue it and giving you reasons why doing what I want you to do will help you attain this end. Right. Whereas a manipulative um, social relation is one where I don't treat you as having an end or consider your end as being important. I, I just try to get you to do what I want you to do um, by By whatever means, so uh, if I can do it by talking you into it i 'll do that, but if I can do it by drugging you i 'll drug you you know this is right it, 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 whatever it takes to get you to do what I want you to do that 's manipulation right, and so that's that
1: 's also why the therapist is also manipulative because again he 's not looking at anything objective he 's just trying to uh, i trying to find the passage where he actually talks
0: about it. Why don't you say, why, why is the therapist manipulative? Well, we can put it this way. In a way, what, what McIntyre is saying, what's typical of modern society is um, the dissolving of the distinction between manipulative and non-manipulative social relations. So in a way, everything is reduced to a kind of manipulation. And emotivism um, is a very clear expression of that. Because for the emotivist, all moral judgment ends up being manipulation. Um, there's, there's no way of, of uh, persuading someone else by rational means what's right. going on. Right. The,
1: right. So he says the therapist uh, also treats ends as given, as outside his scope. His concern also is with technique, with effectiveness in tra- uh, transforming neurotic symptoms into directed energy, maladjusted individuals into well-adjusted ones. So uh, here, too, uh, there's a sort of uh, uh, faux expertise, which he talks about later, which is all about means and is sort of indifferent to ends. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're good or bad, so long as you're well-adjusted.
0: Right. This this goes along with the distinction between uh, fact and value, because you're saying... The, the the sphere of value is, is totally subjective. There's nothing objective about it, and um, so the therapist will say the val- your values that's that's a matter of your personal choice and so on. Given the values that you have, I will try to you know manipulate a sort of the sort of factual scientific realm um, to get whatever result you want. But there's no intrinsic relation. And this is the most important of these characters. Is of course the manager, and the manager is the one who um, is the most characteristic of modern society. Um, and th- uh, the manager embodies this most clearly because what the manager does is he says, uh, "I'm just concerned with I'm entirely concerned with means. The ends, that's a matter of you know what people." Uh, what the investors or the government or whoever I'm working for um, randomly decides the ends ought to be. Um, And I'm just concerned with matters of fact um, and, um, you know, doing organizing things such that certain results happen. Right. So,
1: and you see it also, uh, although he's not explicit here, I think it fits with his view in in America, so the manager is supposed to maximize value for shareholders, and money is just a stand-in for whatever you desire, right? right? It's it's right. it's a means of getting buying things, right? So if you if you want to send it to the poor to build a hospital, you can do that. But also, if you just want to uh, you know uh, spend it on lavish meals and uh, large, ugly houses, uh, you can do that. It's it's contentless in itself. But at this point he says, so that's sort of, he's described where we are. And then he now he has to, his next move is to look back and say, how did we get here? What, what created this thing where all we're doing is being manipulative, where the emotivist picture of use really is true because everyone is just uh, manipulating each other. Uh, what caused this? Because it's still the case that we do talk with, you know, objective language. And this is where he looks at the Enlightenment. So here he sort of, uh, let's start with Kierkegaard, because he kind of goes backwards. Right. He starts with Kierkegaard. And I think his discussion of Kierkegaard is really kind of brilliant. Uh, and he talks about either or, uh, and the debate there that, uh uh, kierkegaard writes about between a and b uh the aesthete and the ethical way of life,
0: yes, basically the position is this uh that you have in in um kierkegaard like in Kant, if you take b uh, whose b is the b is the ethical i always confuse yes. them okay, so if you take b b is basically. His position is basically Kantian, um, right? A Kantian morality. And what's typical of this is that you have certain fragments of a previous moral uh, way of life, which um, no longer have the, the context that they once had. So you had in... Uh, in pre-modern times, especially in the in the tradition of, of Aristotle, the Aristotelian tradition of the virtues, you have an idea of man as he actually is, um, man as he could be if he actualized his essential nature, and then uh, a certain uh, certain material uh, judgments about what is really in accord with actualized human nature. In other words, certain moral Judgments, and what you get in, and uh, a way a way of moving from man as he actually is uh, to man when he actualizes his his essential nature, namely the virtues. So the virtues are the way by attaining the virtues you actualize your full nature, and then you will um, you will act according to moral judgments, which in in the Christian. The tradition of Christian Aristotelianism; these end up matching up with uh, the moral law, uh, as um, expressed, also for example, in the Decalogue. Right.
1: So, and so, what he's doing? So, what he's doing, just uh, just briefly, when looking at the Enlightenment, is saying, and here I, I think this is very convincing, although uh, uh, you know I don't know if it could be even demonstrative. He's saying, when you have the breakdown and the enlightenment of, and the rejection, sort of the underlying Aristotelian description of nature, including man as he is and man as he ought to be, uh, you don't get people rejecting morality right away. Instead, they're finding the new rational basis for morality. And then he's going to go through and say how they all failed. And that failure is going to result ultimately in an uh, a manipulative emotivist culture.
0: Exactly, exactly. So what you have left over, be, uh, because of the the rejection of nature, um, which he ties uh, very closely to to uh, Protestant theology and and sort of the idea of of, of total depravity and so on. Um, I would, I think, there's something to that. I think I would, if I had been writing after Ritchie instead of McIntyre, I would have put more emphasis on. The scientific revolution and Descartes and bacon and so on. But he—he does—he well, does, he does, he does bring that, that in too, because
1: because of the rejection of ends, it's ultimately the rejection of any sort of teleology that's going to give you this problem. Exactly, the
0: it's the rejection of teleology. But he he sees that as sort of immediately tied to to uh, Calvinism and to Jansenist Catholicism. Um, <laughs> but which I think both of those sort of later Calvinism uh, that Max Weber talks about. And um, the Jansenist Catholicism—that was the background of people like Diderot and so on. They—they uh, they both uh, are also t- in dependent on on Cartesianism and the, the rejection of natural teleology. Anyways, what you get is you. Re- so you reject uh, a teleolog- teleological scheme, which means what you have is just left over from those elements I mentioned. Are just man as he actually is namely a weak and, and venal creature and a certain content to morality um inherited from christianity so you've got these these uh, rules of morality as it were which are now sort of just sort of seen as arbitrary commandments and you've got man who's this you know not, not very good being and they don't seem to fit it's like what how how can these be the rules for this how can you know the the strict pietistic morality of kant's lutheran upbringing be reconciled with his uh, idea of man as as this uh, as he actually is, which is a you know a intemperate and unjust and so on. Um, and so you have to find some way of of justifying those rules for this creature that doesn't depend on on a teleology that doesn't depend on saying okay this is how man happens to be, but he has the potential to reach his end to realize his essential nature um, by a t- by cultivating the virtues. Once that falls away, there's kind of this puzzle. How do you justify morality now? This becomes, morality itself is sort of invented he, now because it's seen now as this particular area of study rather than just seeing it, you know, as uh, the good for man considered generally. It's now the moral good of man, which is this particular set of, of random moral rules that we happen to have inherited in our, in our society. How can we justify saying man ought to ought to uh follow them given that man as we actually see him is, you know, selfish Hobbesian?
1: Right, 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 right. And he he goes backwards. So maybe maybe now we can can look at uh uh Kierkegaard because Kierkegaard's interesting because I think in a certain way Kierkegaard will come back in uh in MacIntyre's own view of it mm-hmm. where you either, you know, there is kind of a choice. Right. He gives the choice as Aristotle or Nietzsche, but Kierkegaard gives a sort of proto version of this between A and B. Right. Uh, or as we can just say between the aesthetic life and the moral life. Right. So, so why does that fail? Why does why does Kierkegaard? Uh, how does he describe it
0: in in Enten Eller? Well, so B is B is sort of a Kantian moralist who has this idea that. Human life is all about following certain categorical imperatives, recognizing the, the majesty of the moral law within and right. it's categorically binding nature on your life. And the, the sort of the model for this in, in Kierkegaard is, is the married man who um, ties himself forever to a single woman um, and to you know raising a family and all these duties and so on. Um, and he finds fulfillment in that in sort of committing himself fully to this ethical imperative, whereas the aesthetic a the Esthete, um he he thinks that uh, fulfillment is to be found rather in uh aesthetic experience in in pleasures and in uh the enjoyment of of beauty and wit and brilliance and so on the problem the reason why it it doesn't work is because why Kierkegaard comes to kind of a uh, an aporia um, in enten eller is that if if the fundamental orientation of your life is a matter of choice which it ends up being it's enten eller radical choice either radical or, choice you have to radically choose between these different ways of of seeing human life if that is a matter of of radical choice um and obviously the choice can't be justified by either of the systems because it's a choice between the systems, then you've already lost an essential aspect of uh, the ethical. So if if you have to choose between A and B, then in a, in a certain way you can't choose B because B presupposes that the law has a um, a hold on you that's not... That is not based on your choice right and That's he gives a categorical. Three, he,
1: right he gives sort of some 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 characteristic notes of of, of Kierkegaard in Inton eller and his reading of Inton eller he, he says is a little different than Kierkegaard specialists uh, who sort of read into it positions Kierkegaard would later hold right. but I don't think we, we we can ignore that for our purposes we can ignore but that the third The third characteristic is going to be characteristic of almost all the Enlightenment guys, which is the conservative and traditional character of Kierkegaard's account of the ethical. It's uh, it's almost because it is Kantian and Kant's ethical system is notoriously uh, uh, sort of based on his upbringing and, and sort of, you know, Why does Kant really think that's good? Well, it's his upbringing. So Kant thinks of himself as being enlightened and finally really seeing the reasons and and getting rid of all the prejudice. But then his actual uh, recommendations, his actual views end up being completely based on prejudice and pre-existing morality. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was
0: saying before about the two fragments that Kant inherits. on the one from the original view you inherit a certain content to morality that's this conservative part it's already clear what morality is namely it's you know uh, fidelity to your wife and not lying and not murdering and all these different things being honest and so on and then but the the question is not what is what is moral the question is how to make sense of that that moral content which has been removed from the the context in which it was originally formulated. So the question is, you know, how do I justify that content? That's the question for the Enlightenment moral philosophers.
1: Right. And and so he talks about this also with, with uh, well, no, no, let's go to Kant then. So, uh, and, and here I, I, th- I want to bring in a, a, a second thing that he talks about that I, I was struck by. He Kant does not want to justify things based on desire, but he also doesn't want to justify things based on, uh, law, uh, religious belief, which is essentially law. So he wants to give uh, the moral categ- uh, the uh, 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 categorical imperative can kind of be seen as a new way of justifying law. Because in the pre-existing culture, we talked a lot about virtue, and virtue is certainly the focus. But very subtly, McIntyre sort of points out that the other thing that you'll lose is... law which is in a way external uh, virtue it's 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 the ruler the society making you be virtuous for certain reasons Uh, so what is Kant's move that's that's Kierkegaard's and Kierkegaard's is self-defeating Kant's the the uh, along with Mozart enlightenment figure par excellence so what does he he sort of says there's two theses uh that he has one is that morality must be the same for all rational beings, uh, mm-hmm. so it's got to be universal, just like you know uh, arithmetic. And the second is that must be binding. Uh, you know, even if you can or can't carry them out, that doesn't matter. Uh, you must try. You mu- your will must be bound. So, where does Kant base morality? What's Kant's attempt?
0: Yeah, so he wants to. That that what you said is what he's looking for is something that's universal and that's binding, that gives justice to the unconditional character of moral judgments. Yeah, he, and it's really so he's yeah. he's reacting in a way here to to Hume, who who is kind of a a, a, a proto utilitarian in a way, uh, because right. for Hume, you know, moral judgments are just sort of rules for how you're going to best fulfill. Your passions. And so there's something hypothetical about morality in Hume's system that is, if you want to achieve um, what your passions are after, then you should follow these rules. But Kant is very clear that this is not what our experience of morality is like at all. We experience morality as an unconditional uh, categorical imperative that's saying, do this, no matter. Or don't do this, no matter the consequences, no matter you know what you hope for, will what you hope will result from it. Um, this is the way. So even if if you know telling the lie is going to, um, you know, save you from terrible embarrassment or whatever, um, there's this moral certitude that you have in in your soul that's saying no, you can't you can't tell the lie.
1: Right, and in contrast to Hume, so. Uh McIntyre says something very interesting. He says that the Enlightenment is full of people, philosophers, whose negative arguments against the guy coming against him, before him, are devastating. And then he'll give a bunch of positive arguments for basically more or less the same conservative morality with a little bit of, you know, Hume's maybe willing to step away. I think it's Hume who's uh, uh, got the thing about the Polynesians. Uh. <laughs> Hume's, Hume's willing to bend around the edges R- Rousseau has some different ideas But they're pretty conservative All things uh, taken into account And so each of them comes along And gives devastating arguments against the guy before him Comes up with a new reason uh, For the same old conservative philosophy And then the next guy comes and does the same thing You end in Kierkegaard who says there's a choice right. And the two main ways of justifying it are Reason is what Kant's trying to do, and desire, which is where Hume and Diderot and and others end up going. Right. Uh,
0: so Kant, the the solution that Kant comes to is to find, as it were, the the criterion for judging a moral maxim, as being in those very being those very conditions that he that he's out to preserve, namely, um, universality and uh, unconditionality. So he's saying, if I'm judging a maxim, I have to look at this maxim and think about whether this maxim could be, uh, whether I could want it to be a universal categorical imperative for all men.
1: Right. And the problem, of course, is that there's nothing inconsistent with what Kant proposes with, uh, as he puts it, a universe of moral egoists you can make categorical universal maxims you don't have to end at the golden rule right you can this, have, is, this is this the is failure this
0: is macintyre's um, this is i mean th- this is macintyre's argument against kant that you could right. kant himself of course says the opposite he said, he tries to show that the the first formulation as he calls it of the categorical imperative that is always acts act such that the maxim of your action could be a universal moral law, um, he argues that that's equivalent with the second formulation of the categorical imperative, as he calls it, which is to always treat other, uh, other persons as ends and not merely as means. Um, right. Which is a way of, of just a sort of abstract way of saying treat others the way you would have them treat yourself.
1: Right, 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 right. And, and this is, so, so the reason Kierkegaard comes up with radical choice is because he looks back at Kant and says, the reasons Kant give. And so th- this is McIntyre's argument, but it's, it's not unique to McIntyre because a lot of people have noticed that Kant is, uh, Kierkegaard certainly noticed it, uh, Nietzsche certainly noticed it, that Kant has sort of this uh, goal, but that his, his, his premises don't really get you there yeah they uh Kant just thinks they are 'cause- 'cause he he's convinced that he's right essentially
0: uh. <laughs> yeah well, that's a mean way of putting it i mean the nice way of putting it is that Kant is you know extremely a person who is extremely attuned to the dictates of of the the natural law in his conscience so he <laughs> So he comes up with this bogus post-hoc explanation for yeah. it, but it's because he was right. a morally good person that he does this. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, it's the same thing with Kierkegaard, though. Like, it, you read Kierkegaard and, and you, you end up, particularly if you read him as a teenager, you think, oh, this guy is so great. Uh, <laughs> but really, it's he's... You know uh, his philosophy doesn't work, but th- there's this apocryphal or possibly apocryphal story about Kant who uh, apparently had this crisis of conscience because he wasn't sure he could sign his letters. Your humble and obedient servant. And he's like, I'm not his humble and obedient servant. And eventually, he found some rationalization for why he was able to say it. But you know, because he-, he had this, how could I possibly sign that? Uh, uh, but before Kant, you have Diderot and Hume, and they are sort of appealing to desire. And again, for a very uh, conservative uh, uh, morality, although Hume is willing to say suicide's okay, and uh, Diderot has some uh, uh, fantasies about the what he takes to be the promiscuous sexuality of the Polynesians. <laughs> but nevertheless... Diderot still thinks marriage is important and it's a basically a conventional view of marriage. Uh, and Diderot is kind of interesting because he has this book that I, I guess he didn't publish during his life, which he sort of argues against himself very effectively. Uh, the nephew of uh, Rameau, the uh, neveu de Rameau, however you would say that in French, uh, uh, in which the young esthete, uh, uh, replies to his uncle, this this philosopher uh, who's who's tried to give this very staid view, uh, giving utilitarian reasons. Uh, first, why do I care about the long run? Uh, if it's if if the pleasure in the short term is sufficiently great, who cares about the long run? Uh, second, even if I did care about the long run, only insofar as it helps my desires. And finally, uh, isn't in fact the world just a giant uh, stage where individuals prey on each other for the sake of their own uh, uh, desire and uh, to satisfy themselves? And uh, Diderot has to sort of pretend that some things are natural to man and some things aren't. Uh, but he also ultimately fails because he's unable to distinguish between rival and incompatible desires. Uh, so let's let's go. So that's sort of a sketch of Diderot, and then Hume. It's sort of funny to think of Hume as conservative, but that's what he says. He he ultimately is in 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 his moral theology or moral uh, 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 philosophy. Yes. What is
0: Hume's how does he attempt to justify such a conservative uh sort of standard morality? Well, he says um it it's through a kind of self-interest well understood. If you under if right. you think about it, really the best way of satisfying your passions is to act according to conventional moral rules. Uh if right. um you know, if you're dumb and and you just break into stores and take stuff, then you'll get thrown in prison and um you won't be you won't be able to satisfy your desires. But if you're industrious and you know you work hard and you get you get a good job and so on, then you you'll be able to satisfy your ambitions and be rich and comfortable and praised by other people. So, so again, it always comes down to this: the fact that the, all these enlightenment guys, they have they basically inherited two elements of a scheme that used to make sense when those two elements were in in integrated into a teleological view of man but now they don't make sense and the two elements are this conservative morality that is conservative content of morality conservative moral injunctions like don't steal don't commit adultery don't lie um and a view of man as that doesn't really fit with that because you have man as he right. as he actually is as sort of this venal uh totally depraved creature who's uh you know, dominated by passion and so on, and so you have so, to so some, this the, give this 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 evil creature man some rational explanation for why he should follow these random moral rules.
1: So this is the the next point he makes is is why the Enlightenment project had to fail. So some guys try to do. Hume has great arguments against reason. He ends up trying to base morality in the passions. Uh, uh, Kant has great arguments against the passion. He ends up trying to base it in reason. Kierkegaard tries to use radical choice to get away from the either or of passion or reason. Uh, but it ends up, uh, you know, it's not much of an explanation. So let's let's talk about what did the Enlightenment specific what does McIntyre think the Enlightenment specifically rejected? It was, as you said, the idea that man is a rational animal with an end. That was, the, that was the dominant Aristotelian conception prior to the Enlightenment. Uh, and what this means is that you can describe man as he is. The, 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 the power of this is that you can say, man as he is is bad, but we can see man as he ought to be. And we can give you ways, namely the law and the virtues to bridge the gap of man as he is to man as he ought to be. Uh,
0: but Calvin, he starts talking about Calvin. So what, what happens? So man in the in the Aristotelian view, man is what McIntyre calls a functional concept. So right. the the problem that Hume runs into kind of en passant and which becomes sort of one of the dominant questions of morality after Hume is how do you how do you derive an ought from an is hume right. says you know I, re- I read all these moral philosophers and they give me all these premises that are that have the terms that are connected by is and then all of a sudden in the conclusion there's no more is there's an ought and it seems like you know they're just pulling rabbits out of hats how do you how do you get from the way things factually are to the way they ought to be and this was never a puzzle for anyone before hume uh McIntyre says, because it's obvious that if you have a functional concept, then you can draw ought conclusions from is premises. So uh, this is a watch, therefore it ought to tell me that it is 430 right now. S- uh, meaning the, the, the concept of a watch is a functional concept. The watch has a, a purpose, a function, an end, namely telling time. And so, because it is this functional thing, it it ought to function the way uh, uh, such a watch functions ideally. And in the tr- in the traditional Aristotelian scheme, this is what the f- the concept of man is. Man is a functional concept. There is a certain end of man towards which he is ordered by nature, by what he is. And so, you can uh, because of that you from premises that contain this term man can lead you to conclusions about what man ought to do. Uh but with the loss of a of a teleological concept of nature, um in Bacon and Descartes and in Calvin, where you have uh in in Calvinism well, I mean, I don't think this is actually a correct reading of Calvin for various reasons, but let's just say sort of Calvin in in Inverted McIntyre's version McIntyre's version of calvin what see, total, see Adam in total, yeah what the de- total depraved Stetism. nature means uh, means man is no longer considered um just but uh, with natural reason, man is not a functional concept you can't reason is powerless to
1: correct our f- passions, so this gets to why this is the reason uh, he thinks the project had to fail uh. They make reason uh, no longer, they make reason into something calculative or for other reasons impotent to, to talk about, uh, to correct the passions. But ultimately, the Enlightenment guys make reason calculative about ends, it must be silent. Uh, right. It, and then it, so cannot, they, they, it says, cannot understand
0: the, the human end. Reason, right. reason I, won't be able to, if I look at man using my natural reason, I won't be able to see what his natural end is. Uh, And so Uh, man, uh, considered rationally, is not a functional concept.
1: So so here I'll I'll quote a little bit of it. Uh, uh, Hence, the 18th century moral philosophers engaged in what was an inevitably unsuccessful project, for they did indeed attempt to find a rational basis for their moral beliefs in a particular understanding of human nature, while inheriting a set of moral injunctions on the one hand and a conception of human nature, on the other hand, which had been expressly designed to be discrepant with each other. So the issue is, you have gotten rid of man as he ought to be, and now you have these injunctions, and man as he is, and they're clashing. Uh, they're 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 not uh, 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 going together. On the is ought thing, I. I uh, I remember John Finnis saying, people claim I'm Humean, but I'm not. I give Hume such a hard time. Look at this passage of my book. And he, he had this long critique of Hume. And I remember thinking, this critique of Hume is entirely about why Hume didn't actually take the is-ought problem seriously enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know what you want. Okay, you're, you're more Humean than Hume. I'll give you that.
0: That's horrible. <laughs>
1: and anyway he's a, he's a, he's a dear man
0: but uh, so maybe we go we can go now to um, to the Nietzsche or Aristotle choice let's yes. talk a little bit about Nietzsche because Nietzsche Nietzsche realizes that uh, again he, uh MacIntyre does kind of the same move with Nietzsche that he did with the motivists. He says what Nietzsche says is right, but it's not right universally the way he thought it was. It's right about Enlightenment moral philosophers. So Nietzsche sees that um, the Enlightenment project of, of justifying a certain conservative content of moral rules, given their Enlightenment uh, idea of the way man is, a non-teleological view of man, has failed. Right. And Nietzsche takes this as the failure of morality as such, you know. Morality is pure uh, bullshit. It's, it, it makes no sense. <laughs> this is why people love Nietzsche so much. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, his, and again, I mean, McIntyre's point about uh, modern philosophers having great critiques of each other and then, which incidentally is is something i, I will claim of McIntyre himself that his his negative part is much stronger in after virtue at least than his positive part uh, uh, the book gets worse towards the end uh, <laughs> in my view we can discuss yeah, whether we that's could right. discuss it that's right but, but uh, he is definitely it's good really at true and holes Nietzsche and this. Nietzsche's the ultimate like he. He demolishes everyone who came before him. His his stuff against Kant is like you read it and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's right, you know. And, yeah. and likewise against Hegel and everyone else, uh, and he sort of he 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 puts in its place, you know, the will to power, which is just pure irrational or irrational
0: uh, uh, will in the place of reason. So, Nietzsche's, so- Nietzsche, Nietzsche, in a way, he's like a McIntyre, I think at one point you quote someone who calls Nietzsche an existentialist, which is kind of a, mm-hmm. a strange way of talking about Nietzsche. But what it means is that ultimately everything comes down to kind of arbitrary decision. You randomly right. decide, you know what you want and that's what you go for.
1: Yeah. And here, and here's something I say, here's some where a place where I, I really, so when I read this, you know, uh, couple years ago for the first time, I really found myself agreeing with so much, and here is one of those statements that I just thought, well, this is right. Uh, Here, the defensibility of the the Nietzschean position turns, in the end, on the answer to the question, was it right in the first place to reject Aristotle? For if Aristotle's position in ethics and politics, or something very like it, could be sustained, the whole Nietzschean enterprise would be pointless. This is because the power of Nietzsche's position depends upon the truth of one central thesis— that all rational vindications of morality manifestly fail and that, therefore, belief in the tenets of morality needs to be explained in terms of a set of rationalizations which conceal the fundamentally non-rational phenomena of the will.
0: Yeah, a uh, magnificent passage. It's yeah. exactly right.
1: And so McIntyre's move here is to say, well, Nietzsche's right, but Nietzsche, as you point out, Nietzsche's right historically about these people and their uh
0: arguments right and Uh, the reason why nietzsche is right is because those people were rejected aristotelianism so that's why the the choice comes down to this nietzsche or aristotle either you can you can go with nietzsche and say okay we uh you know it's just it's all rationalization for will to power or we can say no what nietzsche teaches us is that we have to go behind all these enlightenment attempts at rationalizing morality and, uh, return to Aristotle, which is,
1: uh, I remember, and then he sort of, so the next move he does is he sort of takes it, it does the same thing he already did. He does this sort of a historical tour of sort of ancient Greece, uh, this time going forward in time, you know, starting with Homer and ending up with Aristotle. Uh, I remember with a detour into Iceland. Iceland. Uh, I remember there's a, a professor of ours uh, who is a sort of uh, has, in some ways, maybe an angular personality, <laughs> but who studied with McIntyre.
0: Yeah, and I know who you're
1: talking oddly. About. Oddly, uh, got along with him by all accounts, which was not true of him and all the people he studied with. <laughs> <laughs> and he was sort of slowly reading after virtue, and, and and he told me this in sort of a way of like, you know, oh, you know, MacIntyre. He was he was trying to find what we have, which is Aristotelianism, but he, you know, never quite got there. And he's, you know, I tried to humor him, and I was sort of slowly <laughs> reading his book, uh, and uh, one day. Uh, we started talking, and uh, he started talking about Icelandic sagas, and I love Icelandic sagas. And he sa- I said, "Oh, you're interested in Icelandic sagas. That's fascinating. Have you ever written them written about them?" And he looked at me and he said, "You mean, other than in my book?" And I had to say, "Oh, yes, of course." <laughs> other than in your book." <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. You get one of the great. Let those who have ears to hear
1: <laughs> understand what and whom I'm talking of. But I'm not going to uh, name names here. So that sort of is one half of the book. The rest of the book is about exploring Aristotle and trying to bring Aristotle into our life today. How could that happen? Right. Uh, and the answer is obviously start a compound in the bayou.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's where this is all leading right this is the culminating t- <laughs> tell us no why
1: don't you quickly give us a a quick tour of the second part of the of the book which which the, our professor was somewhat uh, uh, slightly dismissive yeah. of
0: well i mean we a couple of episodes ago we we talked about virtue um right and in a way McIntyre goes covers a lot of the same ground that we covered in that. He begins with heroic society, talking about the the roles that you have in in heroic society, so in Iceland and in in Homeric Greece and so on, um, and how virtue is identified with fulfilling uh, what's necessary for that role. But then after heroic society comes classical society, and um, classical society inherits the heritage of heroic society in a new context. And so it has to uh, think through the moral life again. And you get basically two different uh, approaches in classical philosophy. You have uh, the sophists who um, basically are kind of Nietzscheans in a way. And then you have... You have Aristotle, who universalizes the insights of heroic society. Um, so virtue is not just doing um, your role, you know, being a good wife, a good warrior, a good child, a good slave, but virtue is being a good man, and that means doing the activity of a man well. Um, and
1: uh, he, and how does he how does he bring that? because this is the part where I get a little skeptical, and I haven't read all that much of his later work where apparently he develops this and and makes it a little stronger. But how does he bring that? What does he say? So that's what Aristotle thought. But after the Enlightenment, how do we bring that in? Because this was
0: Strauss's problem as well. Right. So part of the problem is that you have a society in which you've got these characters which embody Enlightenment presuppositions about morality and the distinction between fact and value and so on. Um, you have uh, uh, you have these bureaucracies both in the state and in in uh, commerce uh, business and so on which embody an enlightenment error embody non-teleological view of humanity so this is part of the problem this is of uh, how to apply a t- an aristotelian teleology in modern life and one of the ways he goes about uh, goes about it um is by looking at what he calls practices right that is looking at certain human activities that uh where you can see very clearly that uh certain goods are entained that are internal to that kind of activity um and these goods are goods that are had in common by the practitioners of that activity they're they 're common goods in our sense of not being. Uh, right, divisible. I mean, you can divide them, uh, you can share them without dividing them, or, or and they don't become less by being shared by many and so on. And then you see that there's certain qualities that are necessary to participate in those practices and attain those goods intrinsic to practices. And those activities um, are the virtues. And so this is a way of, um, in a modern context, leading people to an understanding of virtue and its importance. Uh, so even if the the broader society is is corrupt and has got kind of this Weberian uh bureaucratic mentality um still uh, you can find areas of modern life where you can begin to cultivate virtue and and show people how the virtue how the what the virtues are and then right. you move from that to um bring leading them you lead them then from that to what he calls a narrative conception of human life, um, which is, is going to then show that this, that initial definition of virtue that he gives in terms of practices is explicitly a provisional definition, which has to be completed then by seeing the importance of the virtues, not just for particular practice, but for the whole story of your life, which you, um, to make your life intelligible, you have to see it as being a kind of a story. In other words, moving towards an end. Um, and then you're going to see that the virtues are necessary to tell that story in a good way
1: right uh, so uh, my sort of issue with it is that it doesn't first off you have to th- you have to he, he rests a lot on narrative, and I, I I wonder about that. but if you just stick to practices, you still haven't given it is provisional you haven't given a real reason uh. And I think uh, the other way, a more direct, but perhaps a harder path, is, is, is one that this was, in fact, my intellectual journey, which was you read a bunch of enlightenment philosophers thinking about mostly about the philosophy of nature and of metaphysics and, and philosophy of science, and then you read Aristotle a whole bunch, very closely, and you decide, no, these guys are, are completely wrong. There are ends, Aristotle was right. So, okay, modern science has something to offer, but in its, uh, and you can be very effective by focusing just on mathematical models and ignoring uh, formal and final causality. But these things are real and they exist in nature. And then once that happens, it's very easy to say, oh, all these guys are wrong. In their moral schemes, because they keep rejecting uh, teleology, which I haven't rejected, which I've embraced, and therefore, you know, yay, I have the old uh, old old morality. Whereas uh, I think some of the people get 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 sort of you know practices it, it's not a it's not a reason it's not a fundamental reason for being virtuous. It's only sort of a... Uh, well, halfway yeah, he,
0: I mean, he doesn't... I don't think McIntyre intends it as a fundamental reason. I think he intends it as a way a way of leading modern people to see what virtue is and to begin to cultivate it. And this has to do, of course, with the main difference, say, between McIntyre and Leo Strauss. Has to do, I think, with... Um, whom you brought up earlier, and in a way also the difference between McIntyre and the teachers that we studied with at Thomas Aquinas College, the sort of Laval School Thomism, has to do with McIntyre's historicism, which means, um, which, and his claim that, you know, to really, the understanding of morality depends very heavily on social conditions. And so if you want to recover an Aristotelian Understanding of morality, that's not going to be possible without changing, um, without beginning to change social structures, which will give you the context in which Aristotelian concepts will make sense. It's not enough to just say, um, to be an armchair Aristotelian and say, okay, I've, I understand that these Enlightenment guys are all wrong, and actually Aristotle is right. Um, to really understand what Aristotle is talking about, you need to be living a common life with other people pursuing right. virtue.
1: And, which is certainly you know fair enough in terms of when will the masses be reconverted well obviously social practices are going to be huge uh he seems at times and certainly his epigenes uh go in this direction of of thinking as if the social context creates what will and won't be moral in a like fundamental sense i remember reading this one fellow who who uh hasn't liked our previous offerings on McIntyre very much, <laughs> but is a self, is a, 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 you know, uh, has done graduate studies focusing on McIntyre. Uh, and uh, someone suggested that abortion was wrong. And he came back very uh, uh, stententially with, well, we, you know, it would depend on the practices and context. And in a certain uh, social uh, situation, if the practices were so situated, basically to say that. Well, you know, maybe abortion is great if you have the right, you know, practices and uh, narrative and all these things. And I remember thinking, "What the hell is this
0: guy yeah, talking about?" Yeah, yeah, that's about? that's clearly <laughs> nonsense, and that's kind of unfair to McIntyre. But McIntyre, and what, what's interesting, what would be interesting, maybe we can do this in another, maybe we can do a podcast on historicism and talk about this. Yes, um, because we're running out of time today. But if you compare McIntyre's discussion of of Collingwood. R.G. Collingwood, um, Mm -hmm. with Leo Strauss's discussion of the same. You have what seem at first like basically opposite positions. That is, McIntyre says Collingwood is right and Strauss says Collingwood is wrong. But but I think that um, the way McIntyre understands Collingwood is... Uh, Tell the folks at home what what it was exactly that Collingwood was saying. So Collingwood says the understanding of moral terms depends... On the historical period in which they're being used, and the kind of society in which in which you are, and it's a mistake to think that ancient moral philosophers are talking about the same thing as modern moral philosophers. So, like people like Sidgwick, who wrote this this infinitely boring history of moral philosophy, he uh, he talks about Aristotle as though Aristotle is talking about the same questions and problems that um, you know nineteenth century English utilitarians are talking about, and he thinks right. you know this the when Aristotle says day he means ought in the same sense that you know John Stuart Mill means ought Um, (laughs) (laughs) and he just has a different explanation for why for what the 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 justification of it is and uh, McIntyre says well that's true that there uh the subject of moral philosophy does change depending on the context in which moral philosophy is being done um Collingwood, what Strauss sees as being wrong about Collingwood is the idea that there's no way of adjudicating between different historical periods. But I think McIntyre doesn't accept that in Collingwood. McIntyre does think you can adjudicate between historical periods. In fact, that's what After Virtue is doing. After Virtue is saying, look, the Enlightenment uh, moral philosophy is wrong and Aristotle's moral philosophy is right. That's the whole point of it but being but taking from calling with this sensitivity to the way that uh that apparently similar sounding moral concepts can actually have a different you can actually be talking about different things using similar yeah. words yeah
1: and that's and that's certainly true i mean it, it, there's a way in which secundum quid his historicism is right or, or can be right and it's certainly valuable uh to and and, and i mean you know uh one of his, okay, uh, I, I, we'll wrap up now. But uh, uh, thank you all for joining us. And I hope you all made it to the end. And uh, Potter, Edwin, it was a great time talking to you. Yeah, thank always. you so much.
0: This, this is a lot of fun.